Love That Neighborhood is now on Patreon, which offers exclusive bonus content to members. For just 10 bucks a month, you can unlock bonus interviews, live streams, ebooks, and more. By becoming a Patreon member, you're helping us make more of the podcast content that you love and supporting our Urban Missions program. It's really easy to join. Just go to patreon.com slash love thy neighborhood. We'd love to have you with us as we explore discipleship and missions in our modern times. Again, go to patreon.com slash love thy neighborhood and sign up today. Love thy neighborhood. Okay. Oh, cool. oh definitely. <laughs> awesome. Discipleship and missions. For, for modern, modern times. times. Hey listeners, it's Anna. So if you read the title of this episode, you know that we're talking about sex. You know, our episode isn't going to be rated NC-17 or anything, but it's also not going to be rated PG either. So if you have young ears around, now's your chance to grab some headphones or save this episode for later. The episode also includes content related to sexual abuse and betrayal. So please listen with care. Oh, man, this is, um, how do I start this episode? I think you just have to just, like, go for it. Yeah, you just, I don't know, you gotta go. Just gotta go. Okay, well, I think I'll start with a wedding. I am 36, I think. I kind of lost count after 30. So this is Katie Woody, and in 2012, she married her now husband, Craig. You know, the wedding was super simple, there was a small ceremony, and it was filled with all the people that she loved. That was the best part. People from childhood, high school, college, my brother and dad led parts of the ceremony. She had her friends play the music that she loved, and she and her husband Craig, they said their vows. I present to you, Mr. and Mrs. Craig and Katie. You know, there was a lot of laughter, there were a lot of pictures, there was a relaxed dessert reception, and there was even, you know, a fun little send-off. There weren't any sparklers or rice or birds or anything, but people did throw candy nerds candy because it was really colorful and fun. It was also kind of painful to get pelted with it, but it was pretty in the pictures, I mean. And so they leave the reception and they go to a hotel. Obviously, they're both excited. They're both virgins. They have both saved themselves for marriage. We had all these friends that gave us a lot of advice. They were like, oh, we should go eat or we should take a shower. Someone had given us the advice to like lay a towel on the bed in case there's bleeding. So, you know, it's not like super sexy. So it's awkward to say the least. They were just trying to figure out each other's bodies. How does like that, like, I don't understand how that fits in because I'm a lot smaller than you are. (laughs) Yeah, it was a little bit shocking. But, you know, they get more comfortable with each other, they get going, their bodies are coming together. But then... All Katie feels is pain. It felt like I was being torn or cut. It was very, like, sharp, intense kind of pain that I cannot ignore what's happening with my body. And... This was definitely not the experience she imagined it to be. I kind of had this perception of like, I have saved myself and this is going to be beautiful and the angels are going to sing down upon us. And and it wasn't, it was dark and terrifying. (laughs) 
You're listening to the Love That Neighborhood podcast. I'm Jesse Eubanks, and I'm here with my wife, Lindsay Eubanks. Every episode, we hear stories of Christians trying to follow Jesus in our modern times. Today's episode, where the gospel meets sex. And because of how broad this topic can be in this episode, we're going to be focusing specifically on sex within heterosexual marriages. We'll be exploring our expectations of sex, how Christians are getting sex wrong, and how, hopefully, sex can be redeemed. Welcome to our corner of the urban universe. I think it's safe to say that we live in a world that is obsessed with sex. Yep. Sex in commercials. When it gets hot, new acts recharge. Sex in movies. Sex in music. Sex as identity. The words that people use to describe their sexual orientation is ever-changing. And these days, churches are talking a lot more about sex, too. There are sermons. Sex is a good thing. We don't teach that in the Books. And even couples programs. Welcome to Ultimate Marriage. Today we are going to be talking Both the culture and the church have a lot of ideas about sex. You know, some good, some bad, and some even worse. And so, of course, we have to ask ourselves, with so much emphasis on it, what is the purpose of sex? Yeah, you know, throughout history, humans have argued a ton about what sex is for. Is it just a natural appetite or animalistic passion? Is it just a self-expressive pathway to finding ourselves? What about a Christian view? Is there a distinctly Christian view of sex? Yeah, you know, Christians have offered this other option. Like, contrary to this modern idea that sex merely requires consent, the Christian view is that sex actually requires covenant. You know, to give our whole bodies to someone, we also have to give our whole selves to someone. So the Bible calls this becoming one flesh. So just as a husband and wife have bound their life together relationally, they have also bound themselves together physically. So sex, the highest level of physical intimacy, is a reflection of marriage, the highest level of commitment. And it's all a gift from God. Yeah, there is a book by Dr. Dan Allender. It actually kind of has an arresting title. It's called God Loves Sex. And in his book, he talks about that sex is meant by God to be one of the bridge experiences between earth and heaven. So like the Christian view of sex and marriage, they're meant to go together. They're not separate. Right. So when sex is great, both spouses are making each other feel loved, accepted, known. Yeah, and the first picture of this, it actually shows up all the way back in Genesis. So the first half of Genesis 4.1 says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Another translation says, Now Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. And the Hebrew root of the word knew in that verse is the same root in the Psalms. When David writes in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Yeah, so when it talks about Adam knowing or making love to Eve in Genesis, it's more than just physical. There's also a spiritual knowing that happens. Hang on a second. So back to Katie's story. She said angels were going to sing during sex. What happened? Yeah, where we left Katie's story was where she and her husband Craig were trying to have sex. And throughout the honeymoon, each time they would try, Katie would feel this extreme pain in her vaginal area. 
Most times, Katie needed to leave the room and gather herself because the pain was just so intense. I need a minute, like, going to the bathroom and trying to take a breath. I'm trying not to have a meltdown on my brand new husband. Katie was feeling a lot of isolation and loneliness in the moments and into the start of their marriage. Each time they tried to have sex, it was never successful. Like, neither of them reached orgasm, and it wasn't for lack of trying. We tried out different positions, and I went to my doctor who told me that I was fine, and I just needed to learn to relax and just drink some wine. She gave me a prescription for Valium. So Katie had started seeing doctors because they quickly discovered that this amount of pain, it's not normal. One doctor gave her a set of dilators. So I would just start at like the, the smallest and try and try to work up and be like, okay, maybe, maybe it's a little bit less painful today. Maybe that was just something I dreaded all the time. This, I mean, this just sounds horrible. It sounds traumatic. Yeah, this definitely wasn't what either of them had hoped for in their first year of marriage. And it caused a lot of tension in their marriage. They would fight about things both related and unrelated to sex kind of turned into like him believing that this was in my head and that I didn't like him and I just didn't want to have sex with him. So I just felt very broken. And as time goes on, you know, a full year passes and she hasn't told anyone about all of these struggles that she's going through. She hasn't told anyone about her pain, about um, the arguments she and her husband are having. But eventually, she just couldn't hold it anymore. So one day, after Thanksgiving dinner, Kitty went up to her mom and told her everything. It was like the floodgates opened, like I couldn't stop crying. And so I just like had poured out everything, all the feelings, all the hurt, all everything that had gone on in the first year. And Katie said that was the first time she felt some sort of peace, you know, some sort of relief. And her mom listened to her and Katie felt really heard and seen. And so I knew like, this is real. Like this is not in my head. It's not something I've made up. This is a real thing, and we need help. And so they slowly told a couple more people that they trusted about their struggles. They went on to see a lot of doctors. They started going to marriage counseling. And this continued on for more than three years. I mean, I wished for a long time that Craig would just bring home divorce papers. I was so tired and stressed, but I just wanted out. I just wanted to not be miserable, and I wanted him to go find, you know, go find someone that's not broken. I'm just fighting tears over here. Yeah. Yeah. This sounds like a really hard place to be in. Yeah. It was a really dark time for them. This thing that was supposed to be a gift just felt like a black cloud over their marriage. But then one day, when they were at one of their doctor's visits, that doctor said that he had a patient six years earlier that was diagnosed with something called vulvar vestibulitis. Wait, what is uh, vulvar vestibulitis? What is that? Yep. So a more formal definition would be severe pain during attempted vaginal entry, like intercourse or using tampons. Okay, so at the appointment, the doctor finds out that there are only two other doctors in the country that dealt with that specific condition and offered surgery for it. I mean, that's great news, but also the fact that the doctor had to search the whole country for some answers and only found two. Yeah. Wow. 
you know, they take action immediately. Katie and Craig, they fly out to Washington, D.C. from Texas, and they make an appointment with the doctor, but, you know, he's on sabbatical. Oh, no! But they're able to meet with his assistant, who offered Katie a few options. One of them was... It's a cream made out of chili peppers. Like, on the scale of, like, 1 to 10 on heat, it's like 100. You put it on and it burns your area, so it makes it numb. (laughs) So... Yeah, so I said no. Rightly so. Oh my gosh. It's like cauterizing yourself. Yeah. Yeah, so hard pass. They did try other different types of numbing creams, hopefully to dull the pain. Still wasn't helpful. But thankfully, you know, the primary doctor came back from his sabbatical, did not suggest chili cream. Uh, Good job, doctor. Yeah, pretty good. (laughs) And eventually, he told Katie that she was a great candidate for surgery, and she decided to go for it. At our last appointment, the doctor did like a Q-tip test. And there was a pain, like both me and Craig are looking at each other like, we can't believe this, this is a miracle. So 69 or 23 days in, we could actually consummate our marriage. So how many years is that? That is around four and a half years. Wow. Wow. Okay, so like, that's it, right? You know, so they, problem solved. Problem solved. Like right, they got angels. to go and have like a bunch of great wild sex, and everything was great, right? <laughs> you know, the angels might have sung down on them after the surgery, but that didn't fix everything for them. They had gone through so many years of hardship. Even after a successful surgery, Katie still had this dark narrative about sex. Like sex is painful. Sex is bad. It's dirty. It's embarrassing. And so for a long time was really one-sided and not because he was making it that way. It's just like, I didn't really think it was for me. It wasn't something for both of us. I mean, after four years of pain, it is hard to turn that off. Just from a biological standpoint, if you keep having pain with the same activity, what fires together, wires together. So yeah, it's going to become an activity that you want to avoid. Yeah. And even though, like, not every woman has Katie's condition, I do think, like, their story is not an uncommon story. I think that there's always both physical and relational challenges in marriage when it comes to the topic of sex. I mean, it's one of the big three. It's like, let's fight about money or kids or sex. Katie and Craig's scenario that they're living through, it's like, it's so understandable. Let me ask this. Katie says sex is bad, it's dirty, and like those are probably ideas that predated her being married. So my question is, where are Christians getting their ideas about sex? Well, after the break, we will find out. Stay with us. Hey, this is Kirsten, the recruitment assistant at Love Thy Neighborhood. We recently asked some of our alumni how serving with us has impacted their lives. My name is Silas McCord, and I am from Raleigh, North Carolina. Silas served with us for a summer as a videography intern, and he shared one of the ways he experienced close Christian community during his service time. The greatest part was just being able to be completely open and honest about everything that was going on in our lives. And a lot of these guys are like very different from me. Just being able to see how relationships can still grow because of those differences has been 
really awesome to see that God is kind of ordaining all of those differences. If you want a hands-on experience of missions in our modern times, come serve with Love Thy Neighborhood. We offer internships for young adults ages 18 to 30 through the areas of service, community, and discipleship. You'll grow in your faith and life skills. Learn more at lovethyneighborhood.org. Love the Neighborhood Podcast, Jesse Eubanks. Lindsay Eubanks. Today's episode, where the gospel meets sex. Producer Anna Tran has been telling us about Katie Woody. Katie was diagnosed with vulvar vestibulitis, which caused her so much pain that she and her husband Craig were not able to have sex until a successful surgery after four years of being married. And even after the surgery, Katie thought that the sex could automatically fix their marriage. But instead, once the physical barriers were relieved, she discovered that they had other struggles in their sex life. So it's fair to say that her expectations and her reality, they were not aligning. So what I want to know is where did Katie get these ideas about sex? Right. Yeah. And I think we need to take a look at where Christians are learning about sex. And to answer that, I'm going to tell you about a woman named Sheila. I am Sheila Ray Gregoire. So Sheila's a writer, blogger, and a public speaker. She has spoken at conferences covering topics like Christian marriage, family, and of course, sex. That's what sex is supposed to be. It's, it's a spiritual knowing of someone. Our society has taken sex and so perverted it mm-hmm. that it has become mostly about the physical. So that's a clip of Sheila from around 2009. And it's on a Canadian Christian talk show called 100 Huntley Street. Oh, so 2009, like she's been doing this for a while then. And clearly she's not afraid to talk about sex publicly. Right. So when she started her blog in 2008, she started to notice that people really engaged with the blog when she would write about sex. I talked a lot about how to show gratitude, how to be kind to one another, how to revive the romance, how to flirt. And what I've increasingly realized is that that's that's kind of like putting a Band-Aid over things. So back in the early 2000s, she and her husband were speaking at a lot of different Christian marriage conferences. And at the time, one of the most popular Christian books on marriage was called Love and Respect by Emerson Egridge. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've heard of that. Uh, bestseller. I mean, probably sold millions of copies. Yeah, I remember reading it. It was basically a marriage book helping couples communicate. Right. And the main idea throughout the book is that love is a driving need for women and respect is a driving need for men. And when Sheila and her husband would speak at these conferences, they would sometimes recommend this book books that we were told by the conference organizers were really good. And so I would hold up Love and Respect and I would say what a great book this was. I hadn't read it, but everyone was saying it was a great book. Fast forward to 2019, Sheila has been writing about marriage and sex for over 10 years. And then one day she sees some Christians on Twitter arguing about sex. Yeah, that is not hard to imagine at all. Right. And particularly how Love and Respect talks about sex in the book. And she's alarmed because, you know, she's been recommending it for years. But what she's seeing online doesn't seem right. So she gets the book out, flips to the chapter on sex, and she reads this one line that really shocks her. And what I read is, if your husband is typical, he has a need that you don't have. 
alarm bells are going off in her head. Because throughout the chapter, it so heavily emphasizes that men need physical release, but it doesn't mention other aspects of healthy sex. So nothing about intimacy, it's just physical release. And if he doesn't get physical release, he comes under satanic attack. Affairs are generally caused by women not having sex. And you need to sympathize with his struggles with lust if you expect him to have any sympathy for your body image issues. And that is the entire chapter. There was not a single word about the fact that women can feel pleasure, let alone should feel pleasure. And just to put that line in context, this is a direct quote from the paragraph right before it. A wife longs to receive her husband's closeness, openness, and understanding. You can achieve this in two ways. One, do your best to give him the sexual release he needs, even if on some occasions you aren't, quote unquote, in the mood. Or two, let him know you are trying to comprehend that he is tempted sexually in ways you don't understand. As you allow him to talk about his struggles, you have all the more opportunity to be his friend as well as his lover. If your husband is typical, he has a need you don't have. Lindsay, what what jumps out to you as you hear this passage from the book? Well, the last line, he has a need you don't have. So I have, I mean, women have no sexual needs. Yeah, and men have all of the sexual needs. And and even like the sense of uh, like a wife longs to receive her husband's closeness, openness, and understanding, as if like husbands husbands don't want that. Like, they only need sex. Yeah, like what if the wife has the higher libido? You know, uh, which happens plenty. Okay, so now that she's actually read the book, what did she do? It was a turning point for Sheila. Soon after she read the book, she wrote a few posts on her blog, specifically calling out the problems she saw in the chapter on sex, and also in the rest of the book. And I was inundated by comments, huge traffic. Hundreds of emails, direct messages, comments. And then she had a person on her team. She's an epidemiologist with a stats background. Take the comments from the blog, social media, emails, and statistically analyze them. Oh, so she's not just rattling off her opinions. She's actually doing deep statistical analysis of the situation. My kind of girl. Yeah, and then the epidemiologist, she prepared a report. She did a qualitative systemic and systematic analysis of it. And we sent that report to focus on the family because they publish love and respect and they promote it. Oh, my gosh. So this is like a big deal, you know, dropping your findings on the doorstep of like such a massive Christian organization. Like it feels like a little bit like a like Luther you know, <laughs> nailing his 90 theses to the door of the church, but they're like, they're like sexy theses. <laughs> so what happened when she sent it? Well, they never got back to me. They didn't even reply. Oh, well, that was like a buzzkill. And so we thought, well, they can ignore a few hundred women, but can they ignore 20,000? And so we decided that we would just try to do the biggest study that's ever been done of evangelical women to see how these messages impacted people's marriage and sex lives. So Sheila and the epidemiologist on her team brought on a third person, who was Sheila's daughter, actually. She is a psychometrics grad. She did a lot of work in stats and in survey development in her undergrad. They began this really big scientific endeavor to specifically answer this question. 
Do our evangelical resources for sex and marriage point readers to healthy relationship dynamics or unhealthy ones? So they developed the survey to really high academic standards, and they used scientific methods to analyze the data. Wow, like th- this is like a huge undertaking. Uh, like how many Christian women have ever been surveyed about their sex lives before? I mean, this is the first one. Did they really get 20,000 responses? They actually got over 20,000 responses. Wow. Whoa, that's crazy. Yeah. The majority of the responders were women ages 25 to 60, most of which identified as evangelical. Sidebar, Sheila told me this pretty funny thing that happened. There's this website. It's called SurveyMonkey. It's probably the most popular and biggest survey website available on the internet. Like, we broke SurveyMonkey. Our survey was so big that we couldn't download our results. They had to manually download them for us. Oh they broke gosh. the internet. That's incredible. <laughs> like SurveyMonkey literally exists. It's like one of the premier platforms to do surveys, and they broke it with their sex survey. That's amazing. <laughs> with evangelical Christian yeah, women. This is so great. This is like a like a bad joke. That's great. Yeah. Okay, so I want to share with you some of the findings from the survey. Let's take a look at two different sections of the study. So the first section I want to share is about women's beliefs before and after marriage. So the study actually identified harmful messages they repeatedly saw in popular evangelical books on sex and marriage. So in the survey, women were told what these four messages were, and then they were asked if they believed this teaching before marriage, and then if they still believed it after now being married. So Lindsay, can you help me read these? Sure. Okay, so the first one is... All men struggle with lust. It's every man's battle. 79% reported believing that before being married. 62% said they believe this currently. And second? A wife should have frequent sex with her husband to keep him from watching porn. 40% reported believing that before. 18% said they believe this currently. Third? Boys will push girls' sexual boundaries. 88% reported that before... 81% said they believe this currently. Then, Sheila found this troubling message showing up more frequently than any of the others. The biggest one was this obligation sex message. This idea that you're obligated to give your husband sex when he wants it. 39% reported believing that before. And 21% said they believe this currently. I mean, I can definitely attest personally to hearing this teaching in various forms through the years. You know, Lindsay, like what stands out to you about these statistics and the messages associated with them? Well, all four of them were things I believed, especially as a young Christian woman and a young married woman. I didn't even realize I believed them until somebody pointed it out. Yeah. Which means that, like, these messages were clearly coming through in the circles that we ran in and in the... Right. And it wasn't explicit, like, from the pulpit necessarily, but there were just these underlying cultural norms, so to speak, that were kind of just understood. Yeah. To be this, you know, the, the really good Christian girl. Yeah. Or the really good Christian wife. So you can see that these messages coming from within Christendom were harming people. So much of the teaching was centered on women, serving men, and on males having this uncontrollable sexual need. And that actually leads to the second section of the study I wanted to talk about. And this section has to do with women's sexual satisfaction. 
ooh, sign me up for this section. <laughs> simmer down, simmer down. <laughs> All right. While studies have shown that men are found to reach orgasm 95% of the time, Sheila found that under half of these 20,000 women, 48.7%, say that they reach orgasm all or almost all the time. So this means that generally over 9 out of 10 men reach orgasm consistently, while less than 5 out of 10 women do. Oh my gosh, that is a huge gap. Yeah, so that phenomenon is actually known as the orgasm gap. That's not a gap, that's a chasm. The chasm. The orgasm chasm. (laughs) (laughs) The orgasm. The The orgasm. (laughs) There you go, Sheila, there's your second book, Orgasm. Essentially, men are experiencing a lot more orgasms than women. And then husbands wonder why women don't want to have sex as often. Hmm. Hmm. And so this is clearly showing, like, women are not getting as much out of sex as men are. Yeah, and this goes back just to, you know, all of those messages that Sheila was talking about. Like, everybody is thinking sex is for men, and it's not for women. Or Or if it is for women, women are the ones that have to, you know, serve. But it's not about women receiving or especially, like, receiving pleasure. A lot of these messages that people internalize about sex in the evangelical church, we don't hear them from the pulpit. Where we hear them, it's reading magazines, and it's especially reading books or women's Bible studies. I remember reading these books in college, like Lady in Waiting, which was basically be the prim and proper woman, and then your your man will come and find you, and you will attract purity because you are pure, kind yeah. of that kind of message and every man's battle. That already set me up. Yeah. So then, after the study was done and the data compiled, Sheila and her team put it together in a book called The Great Sex Rescue. For years, I had been giving advice, which was good. It was good advice on how to make your sex life better. And people still had all the same problems. And I started to realize, maybe it's because of this. Maybe it's because we have given people in evangelical circles a totally wrong picture of what sex is. So if Katie and Craig's story is like an example of the physical barriers that can stifle good sex, and then Sheila's story is an example of Christians believing harmful things about sex, like where does that leave us? You know, what does good sex look like? How can it even be redeemed? Well, the good news is, there is hope. So, stay with us. Here at LTN, we're all about helping people build better relationships. And we've actually created a brand new way to do that with our Say More conversation cards. Say More is a deck of 100 questions to kickstart engaging discussions. So, there's silly things like, which famous cartoon character are you most like? And there's also serious things, like what has been your hardest goodbye in life? You can use our Say More cards with your family, your friends, on a date, at the office. My family and I have been using them at the dinner table, and I've learned things about my kids that I truly never knew before. To grab your own deck of Say More cards, go to lovethyneighborhood.org and click the store link at the top of the menu. And while you're there, grab a couple more decks. They make great gifts for Christmas or birthdays, and all proceeds go directly to support Love That Neighborhood. So go to lovethatneighborhood.org and click store and get ready to say more because better relationships are just a question away. 
Love Fanny Bird podcast, Mr. Eubanks. Mrs. Eubanks. So today, producer Anna Tran has been taking us through the electric minefield of sex. We just explored a study about the sex lives of more than 20,000 Christian women, some of the harmful teaching being promoted by Christians, and the massive gap in orgasms between men and women. And before the break, I asked Anna two questions that I still want an answer to. What does good sex look like, and how can it even be redeemed? Right. The Bible says that we as Christians are to walk in the light like Jesus walks in the light. And in order for sex to be redeemed, it first has to be brought into the light. So I want to tell you a story about what this looks like. And the conversation I had started with me asking the question, how was sex talked about in your family? I'm not avoiding the question. I really mean we didn't talk about it. That's the message I took even into adulthood. Hey, wait a second. Who is that? I know that guy. Yeah, you know him. So this is Cliff Roth. What's up, Cliff? Hey, Cliff. He is the executive director of a local ministry here in Louisville. And growing up, the very, very rare times sex was mentioned. It was brought up as a biological reality. It was not brought up as a relational reality. And, you know, even though it wasn't talked about at home, that didn't mean that Cliff was totally ignorant. Like so many other people, Cliff's sex education was basically from school and peers and self-education. And I had already explored my sexuality, but did not have any context for what it was. So I felt a shame around it somehow. And that shame and guilt, it really persisted throughout life as he got older. And so fast forward, Cliff is around 22 at this point. He is in seminary. He is getting ready to become a pastor. He's engaged to be married. I was living in an apartment with some college friends, and there was a, uh, a woman who lived above us who would often be on her porch so whenever Cliff would get home, he and that woman would make some sort of eye contact. And I felt something, you know, I felt this, this sort of sexual arousal in my body. And that began to be something that was like happening regularly. And I was freaking out about like, this is not okay. And, you know, to be clear, nothing physical happened. They didn't even have any conversations. They didn't even talk. But... It was more about just this fantasy of what if, you know, or I think she wants me. Uh, she's looking at me. She must want me. Like, this is like not to throw shade at Cliff at all. Like, this is like such a man thing is like, oh, she was nice to me. She must want to like jump my bones. You know, that it's like so silly. Exactly what I thought. I was like, OK, that is not what I would have thought. In yeah, that and, moment, I, and again, but... like uh, you know, I've done that. Like it's like it's such such a have you silly. Uh, not recently, dear. No, <laughs> just teasing. Just to give you some context for the situation too, um, Cliff told me about some of the struggles that he had with his father growing up, about like the lack of affirmation that he received from his dad. I never got it, and I found something arousing about thinking a woman wanted me. That was like an easier, like easier narrative. Eventually, he and his fiance got married, and now sex isn't a far-off fantasy. It's part of his marriage. Sex is only allowed in marriage, so be because of the way I've been taught. So, like, I can do this thing now, and, and I can do it legally uh, and not feel guilt and shame. So I thought. 
But Cliff's view of sex was really tainted by the use of porn in the past. And that shame came with not knowing how to approach sex rightly. I kind of had an expectation of sex and marriage that I would get this reward of sex without having to do the work of relationship with my wife. I didn't see the two as congruent or running together. I just saw we have sex, we do marriage. Those are two different kind of buckets. So essentially, Cliff, without realizing it, has compartmentalized sex and marriage. They are not integrated at all. I saw myself as a husband, and then I saw myself as this man who wanted to have sex. Those were two different things to me. I was a good husband. I was trying the best I could to be uh, to be a good man, you know? I had so much toxic shame around sexuality, around my identity as a sexual being. I didn't have that much toxic shame around being a husband. I felt pretty good about that. And then as time went on, you know, the shame that Cliff was feeling was compounding. And that showed up when he and his wife would have sex. She would feel my lack of presence in sex. I was this man here, but then I was this like empty shell here acting, you know, when we had sex. And at this point in the story, one thing you need to know is that Cliff was addicted to porn. He hasn't really told anyone about this. At the same time, you know, he's a pastor and there are other people in the church also struggling with porn. And so what he found is that when he would sit down with them and would listen to their own stories. I would tell parts of my own story. I would tell little chunks and I would tell different chunks to different people. And as I did that, I began to feel a sense of freedom in my body. Like I would, I felt good to say that out loud. I've never told anybody that. So Cliff was finding, you know, a little bit of freedom in telling parts of his story. And it was, you know, helping him work through his addiction. I was doing well in a sense of like my addiction was sort of dormant during those those years. And I, I was pastoring, so it was like super high stakes. And they're also counseling other people in how to, you know, become free from porn. But he himself is experiencing this addiction. I could see where that would even help him compartmentalize even more. Yeah. So all of this is happening. He still feels a lot of shame and guilt, but he still hasn't told anyone his full story. But then in 2016, he goes to this conference in North Carolina. It was called the Set Free Summit in Greensboro, North Carolina. And I was like, oh, I need to go to that. I bought two tickets thinking another pastor would go with me. I asked about 16 pastors that were on staff. No one could do it or wanted to do it. He doesn't get a pastor to go with him, so he asks his wife. So he and his wife go to this conference, and the whole time he's thinking, I'm going to help people. So like he's still just like, oh, this is like for other people. This really isn't for me. Right. But then at one of the main sessions, they showed this video. So the video starts off, this guy is underwater. Trying to do something heroic, but got, his, got a rope caught on a rock and couldn't get loose. And he had a knife in his boot. He could have cut the rope, but he just started pulling harder. And the harder he pulled, the tighter the, the knot was. And he's under the water, like dying, like he's going to drown. But then the guy, he realizes that he has a knife on him and he can just cut himself loose. That image of him pulling harder and almost drowning um, just wrecked me because I knew that was that was my story. 
I had broken down, like just started crying. And, you know, his wife is there with him and she looks over at him and she asks him, is this you? And I knew that that was a moment. This is my defining moment to tell the truth of who I am and to finally find a way out, a way to breathe, a way to to live, not experience this death that I feel around sex and hiding and the shame. You know, Cliff gets up and he goes to the table of the ministry that showed the video. He finds someone there and Cliff tells him his whole story. And what ends up happening is that this person came alongside Cliff. Who became for me a friend, a person who journeyed with me and who gave me so much space and language and understanding because he'd walked this path too. He found somebody that's like, hey, I've been where you are, but man, there's a way out of this. And he walked with him through it. Yeah, there was someone available to want to talk with him about it. They weren't afraid of talking about sex. It wasn't taboo for them. So he found a safe place to talk about sex. I think that, that frankly, <laughs> it was, it was, I think we can safely say that up until that moment, I had not experienced the power and the beauty and the freedom of what it means to be a sexual man, like at least taste it the way that God intended. So are we saying like his sexuality was fully healed? No, this was just a turning point for Cliff. It was like the start of a journey of healing for him that has continued on to today. The healing that I felt in those moments uh, was just profound. And, and the, the way that we engaged sexually following in those next months and years, you know, really was radically different than what we experienced in those first 10 years of marriage. So after all of the, the struggles and, you know, the difficulties, Cliff and his wife were finally able to begin to experience sex in the way that it was intended to be. Okay, so I think that, like, Cliff, he and his wife, like, turned this corner for the better. And, you know, one of the things that we're still sort of trying to figure out, right, is, like, what does healthy sex look like? You know, are there any tips or criteria that husbands and wives can implement to make their sex lives healthier and better for both spouses? Well, you know, Sheila has a ton of very specific advice to make sex better. Do you want to hear it? Yes. Just kidding. (laughs) Sorry, we can't really repeat all of that. Um, We would get slapped with an explicit label. I'll just let the listeners read her book for that content. However, here are a few tips from Sheila that I can share. She developed seven principles for Christians to engage in healthy sex. Okay, here are Sheila's seven principles for healthy sex. Okay, so let's do this. How about we rotate reading these? Okay. Jesse, you can start. All right. Number one, sex should be personal. Uh, Sheila says it's a chance to enter into each other's very being, to truly become one. It's a knowing of each other that leads to deep intimacy. Number two, sex should be pleasurable. Sex was designed to feel really good for both people. Number three, sex should be pure. Both partners can expect the other to take responsibility to keep themselves free of sexual sin. Number four, sex should be prioritized. 
Both partners in the relationship desire sex, even if at different levels. And both partners understand that sex is a vital part of a healthy marriage. Number five, sex should be pressure-free. Sex is a gift freely given. It is not about getting what you want through manipulation, coercion, or threat. Number six, sex should put the other first. Sex is about considering your spouse's wants and needs before considering your own. And finally, number seven, sex should be passionate. Sex was designed to allow us to enter into a state of joyful abandon, to completely surrender ourselves to the other in an ecstasy of trust and love. Okay, so to recap, healthy, life-giving sex in a marriage should be personal, pleasurable, pure, prioritized, pressure-free, put the other first, and passionate. Hold on, I'm thinking about that list, and I'm thinking some people could be discouraged. What if they don't have those markers of a healthy sex life? Like, what if a couple, like, only has, like, a few of those things, or, like, what if they have, like, none at all? Right. Those are all great questions. I mean, thinking back to the stories we heard today, you know, a healthy and enjoyable sex life doesn't happen overnight. You know, at the end of the day, the actual action and experience of sex is only part of what contributes to a healthy sex life. And for Katie, it's taken a while for her to accept that sex is a good thing for herself. And learning to speak up about her own needs is part of building a healthy sex life. Hey, these are things that I want. This is what I need today. So it's taken 10 years for, like just in this past year, for me to say this is not just for him, this is for both of us. And it is only good for our marriage if it is a partnership. So I'm just now to the point of like, I can enjoy this and this is good for me and good for us. Yeah, I think even uh, about the term, you know, sex life, like it's not just about intercourse, you know, so much of the other parts of life affect what sex is like. Right. Sex is so different once kids come into the picture and stress from work and sometimes you have health concerns and even, you know, past history, past sexual experiences can affect you in the bedroom. Exactly. You know, and trying to check off all those boxes of a healthy sex life would be a backwards approach, according to Sheila. Rather than making some perfection of a sex life your goal, Instead, make chasing after your spouse and enjoying your spouse and serving your spouse your goal, and the rest will fit into place a lot better. Okay, so we've heard all these stories, and I think that just leaves us with the need to answer this question. How does the gospel transform sex? Yeah, I think a lot of times we can look to sexual fulfillment as something that'll save us or heal us. And, you know, in talking with Cliff, he mentioned how oftentimes people, when they get married, not only do they marry someone they love, but they also marry someone who activates their deepest wounds. Because we think they're going to heal them. And that reality is often expressed in, in married sex. There are healing components about great sex. But at the end of the day, we are in a relationship with someone who, in our intimate, vulnerable moments, reminds us of our deepest wounds. And if we're looking for sex to heal those deepest wounds, it's simply not 
going to do it. It doesn't do it before we get married. It's not going to do it after we get married. You know, I think about how in the culture we live in, you know, there's hookup culture, there's hypersexualized fixations, there's porn use. Sex is so often used for individual self-fulfillment. It's about personal pleasure, and it doesn't even require a commitment to the person that you're having sex with. Right, but the Christian view commands mutual service and commitment to the other. When we can bring profound commitment and profound intimacy together in a relationship, emotional, spiritual, physical intimacy, in that moment, we experience the joy of loving and being loved, of two people lost in each other, a timelessness like eternity. You know, the type of delight that we experience, I think Dan Allender was right. It's a foretaste of heaven. If you want to find more resources on this topic, a good place to start is in our show notes. Cliff and his wife actually teach regularly on sex. They lead workshops that they call sexual health intensives to help other people have healthier sex in their marriages. So for more info on the workshops and to learn more about Sheila's book and survey, check out the links in our show notes. Special thanks to our interviewees for this episode, Katie Woody, Sheila Gregoire, and Cliff Roth. Our senior producer and host is the amazing Jesse Eubanks. Our co-host today is my wife, the beautiful Lindsay Eubanks. Anna Tran is our podcast producer, writer, and who, the other day, asked me to watch her hermit crab who got a little too frisky with a pillow. He doesn't get physical release. He comes under satanic attack. Audio editing and engineering by Jason Rugg. Music for today's episode comes from Lee Rosevere, Pottington Bear, and Blue Dot Sessions. Theme music and commercial music by Murphy DX. If you want a hands-on experience of missions in our modern times, come serve with Love Thy Neighborhood. We offer internships for young adults ages 18 to 30. Through the areas of service, community, and discipleship, you'll grow in your faith and your life skills. Learn more at lovethyneighborhood.org. Which of these was a neighbor to the man in need? The one who showed mercy. Jesus tells us, go and do likewise.